Well, I'm not much of a, a hiker or a, a mountain climber or anything like that, but, uh, but once in a while I, I really enjoy that sort of thing. And there's actually a, a few times where, where I've gone hiking, been able to go hiking in the mountains. And that's always a, a special time as we get to observe God's creation. But one of those times was in Banff when Marlene and I, and, uh, and actually two of Marlene's uh, cousins happened to be here from, from Germany, and we, uh, we decided to, that we were going to go to Sulphur Mountain. Uh, it was kind of one of those things that we decided to do at the last minute as we were trying to show them different things in, in Banff and in the Rockies there. But we were, as we got there, we were, had just planned to kind of take the, the gondola up there. If you've ever been there, you know that there's a gondola that goes up to the top of a mountain, up to a restaurant there. Um, but we were kind of found out the prices and we were young, we were fairly newly married yet, I was still basically right out of seminary and we were, we were poor. So when we found out the, about the prices, we also found out that if you climbed up to the top, you could actually take the gondola down for free. So we thought, that's a good idea, let's do that. But then I kind of got to the bottom of the trail and I looked up, you know, way up, it's kind of like the friendly giant there, and you, uh, you look up there and I thought, there's no way I'm going to make it up there. Nor do I really want to try and go up there. That gondola started sounding like a really good idea, even in spite of the price. Can't we just say we went to Sulphur Mountain, I thought, and not up Sulphur Mountain? You know, but my sort of uh, protests to the other three that were there didn't really work, and so we started walking. And so we started going back and forth, it's kind of a switchback, and up and up, higher we went, started getting into, it was in the summer when we went, and we started seeing snow up there, and those sort of things. Um, but even though I didn't enjoy that trail, I didn't really enjoy the elevation and, and the resultant uh, heart palpitations that I was experiencing, um, once we got up to the top, that hike was so worth it. The view from up there was amazing. Now, my, my breath was already mostly gone, but the view was even more breathtaking. Uh, you could see all the other mountain peaks as you looked off to the one side, to the west, and, and as you looked down the other side, you could see the town of Banff and overlook the Banff Springs Hotel and, and the town site and other things there. It was just great to, to be able to climb up there, to get up there, and to see a perspective from the top down. Well, today, I, we want to make another climb. And we're going to scale the heights and try to see the grandeur that is the grandeur that is God, the person of God. As people, we we mostly kind of function on a on a horizontal level, down at around sea level. And even us as Christians, when we think about how we got saved, we usually kind of think about it in terms of, of our part in salvation. We think about what has happened to us and how we have been changed by God. And those are all good things to think about. But a bigger part of salvation, a bigger aspect of that, in fact, the decisive part of our salvation is what God did to save us. And so when Paul starts out his letter to the Ephesians, where we are starting just starting out in our series, this is what's on his mind and on his pen. The Holy Spirit inspires him to 
sort of burst out of the gates in a note of praise to God for what he has done in saving a people for himself. And as Paul does that, he gives us a a glimpse into how God has saved us. He shows us salvation from God's point of view. He lets us sort of take a peek, just a little peek into God's perspective of salvation. We will we'll come out of this with questions like, we're still going to have, have these sort of questions, like why did he choose to set his love on me and to save me? But we'll also see a little bit of what I've called the grandeur of God's graces. And so I invite you this morning to climb up with Paul to get into the amazing mind of God as we look at how he saves people. My hope for us, for those who are already believers, is that as we hike up and consider these great blessings of God, that it'll help us to expand and to, and to heighten our view of God. That's really why Paul wrote this, to help us heighten our view of God's blessings. And then as we view from the top, then he wants us to bless him and to thank him, to praise him, and to worship him. But for those of you in this room that have not received these blessings from God, my hope is that God will will open your eyes this morning to understand these great truths. And then not only to see and to understand them, but but to embrace them and to put your trust in the Savior, the one that God sent to bring this great salvation. Well, the way Paul opens Ephesians is, is really quite something. He doesn't sort of ease his way into this letter. letter. He does have a, a very short introduction, which we talked about last time, but then he, he just gets right to God. As I read this section this morning, pay attention to the fact that God is described here in three persons. Just in this little section, we can see the, the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But also as I read, I want you to listen for what God is doing and for what we are receiving. So if you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to start reading at verse 3 and go all the way up to verse 14. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. In him, also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, 
to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. This is God's authoritative word. And in response to that, I just say, wow. This is, this is breathtaking, isn't it? Even more than being on the top of a mountain. I read this and I thought, good grief, Paul. You really jammed it all in here, didn't you? This makes this a really difficult sermon to preach. <laughs> Could spend weeks and weeks on this. But I won't. But it's this sort of this explosion of everything that God has done in salvation. And if you'd see this in the original language, that's exactly what this is. The New Testament was written in Greek originally. And in that whole section I just read, it's all just one sentence in Greek. One sentence. 202 words. One sentence. It's almost like he can't stop to take a breath or to... Maybe as he did in those days to dip his pen in the fountain. He just kept on writing. He started blessing God and he couldn't stop. Just let it all out. Paul climbed this mountain and and just really couldn't stop gushing at what he was seeing. He was amazed. And good thing for us, he wrote it down for the church in Ephesus. And in God's kindness, God inspired this rich sentence and passed it down now to us. And now we get to be amazed at who God is. And we get to praise him and thank him and worship him for his action in saving us. Well, I kind of struggled with how to outline this passage. There's, uh, there's really just so much here. And it's all packed into this short space. Ligon Duncan preached eight messages on these verses uh, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary, who was a, a, a preacher in, in London um, in, the, in the 20th century, in his commentary, which is really just based on, on the sermons he get, gave there in London, these 12 verses take up 23 chapters. He spent 23 sermons on these 12 verses. And taking that much time would definitely let us linger on each word, which, which would be great on its own. But I kind of wanted to stay a little bit with Paul's pace. He wrote this as one sentence, and I thought it might be good to try to do this in one message. And besides, Paul comes back to most of these blessings that he's talked about later on in Ephesians, and so we'll get to them. But this passage starts out with the words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What Paul is doing here is, Blessing God for God's blessings to us. And so for an outline, I really liked how uh, Pastor Josh Harris from Covenant Life Church in Maryland navigated through this passage. He just kind of asked questions regarding God's blessings. What are these spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about? How do these spiritual blessings come to us? And what do God's spiritual blessings then tell us about God's ultimate purpose? This passage, this sentence is filled with words about God's purpose and God's intention. So what do these blessings tell us about God's purpose? And so that's how 
I thought we'd make our way through this. So here we go. What are spiritual blessings? Well, the first thing we can see here and we can say is that they are not material blessings. Paul is making a contrast here right off the top. These are not earthly blessings. They are blessings in the heavenly places. They are initiated by God and applied by the Spirit. In that sense, they are spiritual. We need to see our blessings that way primarily. But we often don't. Especially here in, in, in North America where we just sort of uh, float along on this horizontal plane. And it shows up even in our evangelism as we try to win other people for Christ. We promise people that if they receive Jesus, that their life here on earth will be better. Instead of pain and turmoil, everything will be good and peaceful. Well, there is definitely an element of truth in that. But that's not the primary point. In fact, life here won't necessarily be better when you think of it in terms of an earthly perspective. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. Becoming a Christian will give you peace. But that peace is in relationship to God primarily. You will have peace with God where before you were at enmity with God, at war with God. And Christ came to bring that peace. All that to say that we need to keep our eyes primarily on the spiritual blessings that are ours. It's our spiritual blessing that, blessings that will matter when life goes sideways. When trials come, when you lose your job, when, when out of the blue sickness just shows up, when so-called accidents happen, when sudden death comes. It's our spiritual blessings that'll help us and encourage us and help us keep going in those times. And that's what Paul draws our attention to here in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Which basically means everywhere. So here are the blessings. I'm not going to explain each of them in a whole lot of depth today, as much depth as I'd like to, especially the ones that, that come up again that we'll get to later on. Why? Because Paul doesn't expand on them here a whole lot either. He just sort of lists them in rapid fire, one after the other. And all of them point to what God has done for us. God is the actor here. We are the ones being acted upon. Just look at them. Don't take my word for it. Let's, let's read them. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, He chose us that we would be holy and blameless. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. We have obtained an inheritance. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It just goes on and on and on. God's blessings to us. Well, the first blessing there is that we are chosen. 
He chose us. Three simple words there in verse 4. There it is in, in black and white. This is the first of the blessings that come from God to us. And just in case we doubt the fact that they are all God and zero us, this choosing, it says, He chose us in Him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. We couldn't do anything before the foundation of the world. It doesn't get any plainer than that. We can ask questions about why God chooses or how God chooses, but if we believe, as we say, that the Bible is true and all that it affirms, we can't debate that he chooses. The us there refers to Paul and the saints. In verse 2, he's brought them up. Those people who are set apart, those who have been made holy, those who have been separated by God for himself, for his glory. And that last part, for his glory, is, is all through this passage. And in some, way, some ways, it kind of answers the why question. Why does God choose some? Why does he save some? Why did he save me? It's all to the praise of his glory. See that there at the end of verse 6, or at the beginning of verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, or down in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And verse 14 ends with that same line, to the praise of his glory. He saved us for his glory. This is sort of getting hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? It's why we don't all often live way up high in the mountains. We live down here. We can't place ourselves in eternity past. Our, our minds aren't big enough to think outside of the confines of time. But remember, friends, God is not confined by that. God existed before creation. And this is saying that before God created even, he already had a purpose in mind for Dan Sudfeld. He already thought of Dan Sudfeld in relation to Christ before the foundations of this world. We can't make sense of that. For you that are Christians, and even you that are not yet Christians, God in eternity past put you and Christ together in his infinite mind. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Maybe some of you can do that a little bit better than I can. But, but remember here, we're talking about God's perspective. We're starting to climb up now and starting to see things that are totally otherworldly, totally supernatural from where we usually sit down and operate down at this level. So why is this fact about God a spiritual blessing? Why is the fact that we are chosen a spiritual blessing? Well, the final decisive reason that we get saved is because God chose to save us from before the foundation of the world. It's a blessing because God is the one who saved us. Thanks be to God that it doesn't depend on us. We don't have to commend ourselves before God. Even if we tried, our, our sinful bent would constantly make us fall short of God's perfect standard and then be subject to judgment. Now, some people have a hard time with this spiritual blessing. There are some who deny this idea of God choosing. They say that 
God does offer salvation by providing his son, would agree on that, but that people need to exercise their free will and to choose salvation. But this view, when you think about it, has, really has a too, high, too high of a view of our own abilities to choose. And the rebuttal to people that hold that view is that people have to deal not only with this verse, this is not just one isolated verse, but a slew of others. You've got them listed there, and I'm kind of wondering whether I should... I'll read them. Brings more force to it. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go ahead and bear fruit. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Or Acts 9.15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. This is Paul at his conversion. To bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. Paul of all people. It had to be by God's choice. He was the one that murdered Christians. And then all of a sudden, he gets blinded on the road to Damascus and, and he's changed. He's transformed in totally the other direction. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. And Paul would never be the same because of God's choice. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard this, and this is just when they send off uh, Paul and Barnabas, when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had chosen him, no, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, Paul writes, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit in faith and in truth. Or 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, Paul writes, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God's choosing from before the foundational foundation of the world is the consistent teaching of Scripture. And anything, anyone that objects will have to do something with these verses. And I only read some of them. Well, there's other people that would agree that God chooses. So these are the people that deny. But there's other people that would agree that God chooses. But they say that he chooses based on the fact that he knew ahead of time who would have faith in him. Or that he foresaw some sort of good in them by which he had to choose them. But let me ask you, in this view, whom is ultimately decisive? Who ultimately decides? It's based on that person's choice, that other person. God's choice is just sort of a response to that other person's first move. And that's not election. That's not God choosing. And besides that, what good could God possibly see in anyone? We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a, a heightened view of man and a lower view of God. 
James Boyce puts it this way. He says, when people have trouble with God's choosing, their real problem is not with the doctrine of election, although they think it is, but with the doctrine of depravity that makes election necessary. We'll see this when we get to Ephesians 2, where it says that we were dead in our trespasses. We weren't sort of alive. We were dead. And dead people can't come to life unless someone else raises them. That's what God did. He made us alive in Christ. In other words, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, and then he sent his son in the fullness of time, and then he opened our eyes to be able to see Christ and to put our faith in him. This, my friends, is an amazing spiritual blessing. It should elicit humility, not arrogance, because there can't be any arrogance there. There's no boasting. God did it. We didn't do anything. So it should elicit humility and should elicit praise directed squarely at God, not anywhere else, least of all in the mirror. Well, the second blessing there is in verse 5. And I'm skipping some things here. But in love, it says in verse 4, he, he predestined us to adoption. And there are three blessings, basically, just in that one line. He loved us, he predestined us, he adopted us. But I'll, I'll just say a few things here this morning about adoption. The reason God chose us was to make us his children. And we ought to be just amazed by that fact alone. You can be a child, you can be a child of Almighty God. How good is that? The thing we need to, to come to grips with is that we are not God's natural children. Our natural bent to sin wouldn't allow that to happen. And so, without God, we are orphans in a spiritual sense. Yet before eternity, God determined the destiny, that's what it says, predestined to adoption, determined the destiny of those he had chosen. And John 1 says, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And listen to this part. Who were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. That's John 1, 12 and 13. Or Romans 8, 15 to 17. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. So not only do we become children of God, this verse says that we have Jesus Christ himself as our spiritual brother. This all happens by adoption, according to the kind intention of his will. Do you see grace there? It's purely his kindness, his grace that allows us to be in the privileged position as God's adopted children. Holy God, creator of the universe, we are his children. So what? What relevance does that have for us? Well, as God's children, we have this amazing privilege, but we also have responsibility, just like other adopted children or children in general have in their families. Hebrews 12 uses this sort of this father-son language to talk about the fact that God also disciplines his children, and he disciplines them it talks about there as, as proof of the fact that we are his children. And as God's children, we're not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And so we need to obey 
our Heavenly Father. But another application of the blessing of adoption is that Christians ought to care for orphans. That's an, an application or an implication of God's adopting us as orphans. You'll find this all over the place in the Bible. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to to care for orphans and widows. But another application, uh, um, so it's all over the place in the Bible. Why? Because it should be a, a natural reflection of the fact that we were previously orphans. We, we were on our own and God cared for us. And so we now ought to care for the widows and the orphans. How do we care for orphans? Well, one way is to be involved in adoption. Either by getting involved on the front lines through, through foster care, through adoption, or by helping with the, with the huge financial costs associated with the adoption process. The latest statistics I, I read even this week is that there are about 132 million children in the world that have lost one or both parents. It shouldn't be that way. In Canada alone, there are 180,000 And those numbers probably don't include children that have been left abandoned. And so my contention is that Christians, of all people, should be involved in caring for orphans. Just because we were orphans that were at one time cared for by God. If you want to think more about that, please come and talk to me and I can point you to some resources. Or talk to some of the people in our church that have been involved in that. The Galatians or the Matthews. Or the Ties, or the, or the Wixes, or the Nileses. There's people that can help you think through that. But this is already happening in the United States, but I'd love to see churches start orphan care ministries here in Canada. And who knows, maybe it could, it could start here. But that's one of the practical applications of what God has done for us in adopting us. We are blessed to be chosen We are blessed to be adopted according to the kind intention of his will. And thirdly, God has blessed us through redemption. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Actually, redemption and forgiveness are kind of tied together here, both as blessings from God. But notice that verse 6 transitions from emphasizing God the Father as the one that has planned salvation to God the Son as the one who accomplishes that salvation that the Father has planned. You see that in the word beloved. That's talking about Jesus. And, and it's in him, verse 7 then goes on to say that we have redemption. The Son accomplishes the Father's eternal plan by redeeming us through his death on the cross. And so redemption is a word we kind of toss around often, but it was a word that was used in that day and age, not just in a religious perspective, but it was used in the market, especially in a slave market when slaves were bought and sold. And the word literally means to set loose through the payment of a price. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us by dying on a cross, by shedding his blood, by which we receive forgiveness of sins. B.B. Warfield says that whenever we pronounce redemption, whenever we mention the word redemption, the cross is placarded before our eyes, that Christ paid a mighty price for our redemption. So when you think redemption, think cross. What did he buy us from? He bought us out of the slave market. We were slaves to sin. 
And now we are free from that slavery. How could he do that? Through his grace. End of verse 7, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, poured it out on us. He lavished his grace on us. Someone has said it well. There was loads of grace because we had loads of sin. Do you think of yourself as being blessed by redemption and forgiveness? We ought to think of this often, and it ought to cause us to bless, which means to to think well of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for bringing this plan about. This is salvation from slavery. Do you understand that? And you didn't do it. Someone else came and paid the price for you. And it came at great cost. We're about to celebrate Palm Sunday and and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday in the next two weeks. But it's these truths here in Ephesians 1 that we celebrate and that we ponder. It's not our achievements that we celebrate. This is not a, a sort of team party celebrating our own victory. This is celebrating what someone else accomplished for us by suffering and by dying and by being raised from the dead. And so these are our spiritual blessings, election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, grace. This is what God has done for us. It's all from God. Without these blessings from the hand of our gracious, kind, and loving God, we'd be, we'd be hooped. We'd be without hope, Ephesians 2 talks about. If you're a Christian, make sure you take time to think well of the one who did this for you. These blessings ought to cause you to burst forth in praise and worship, just like Paul did. Why? Because it all happened without us doing anything. These verses are filled with everything God has done. When you think of your salvation, there's only one real direction you can go with your praise, and that's toward God. Oh, yes, he might have used others to bring you to salvation, but make sure you think of it that way, that God used people, used means to bring you to the place where you are today. Some of you might say, what about us? Aren't we supposed to do anything? Well, if you look at this passage, you have to go all the way down to verse 12 and 13 to find any human actions. There it talks about our hoping in Christ. And after hearing the gospel message of our salvation, having also believed. But even that hope and that belief is not generated by ourselves. It's generated by God. If you flip over to chapter 2, it says that even our faith, our ability to believe, is the gift of God so that no one might boast. God, through the Holy Spirit, opens our ears and our eyes to hear and to see and to respond to the gospel. That takes away all our pride, smashes our pride, and makes us humble and thankful that God has done what he has done in saving us. So quickly, let me just answer the last two questions. How do God's blessings come to us? Answer, they come to us through Christ. Eleven times in this section you read the words in Christ, in him, in the beloved. It just means that these blessings come because we are joined to Jesus Christ. We are united to him. Paul's emphasis on that reality is, is, is really almost overwhelming here. He just keeps bringing it up. And maybe God inspired Paul to repeat it so often to, to let it sink into our thick heads. Our lives are actually, as believers, are actually united with Jesus Christ through his death and through his resurrection. Ephesians 2 says we're made alive together with him. Romans 6 talks about how we are buried with him through baptism. 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. In his great love, God somehow unites us with Christ so that when he looks at us, he sees his perfect sinless son, no longer sees our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son that's imputed to us. The sphere of our blessing is Jesus Christ. This idea of being in Christ also emphasizes the fact that at one time we were not in Christ. We were actually in Adam. We were stuck in our sin by virtue of our union with the very first human who disobeyed and plunged the entire human race into sin. We're united with Adam. But now through the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, we are no longer united to the first Adam. But as the Bible calls it in various places, the second Adam to Jesus Christ. Adam represents our constant sinful bent. But Jesus came as a man as well. So we could be united to someone who did not disobey God. Who obeyed totally, who lived a perfect life and who paid the penalty of Adam's sin and of ours. And took God's wrath for our sins on the cross. He took our penalty as our substitute and now we can have life because we are united to him. And now these blessings of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 are ours because we are in him, in the beloved. Finally, what do, we, what do God's blessings reveal about God's ultimate purpose? We've read a, a lot about God's purposes in, these, in this sentence, haven't we? The purpose of his will, the purpose of his choosing, the purposes behind his grace, the kind intention of his will, the, the purpose behind our inheritance. Well, in verse 9, we read a little bit about God's ultimate purpose in making these great truths known to us. Paul writes that he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, in Christ, as a plan, and I'm going to switch versions here because it's a little bit uh, better in the English Standard Version, for the fullness of time, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so God is making something known to us. The thing he is making known is something that was a, a mystery before. And this thing is all part of his intention, his purpose, his plan. What is this mystery? What's the plan? Well, it's right at the end there of verse 10. It's to unite all things in Christ, or the summing up of all things in Christ. This is the grand plan. This is the ultimate purpose. This is the main point. Everything in history, before, after, eternity past, eternity future, Old Testament, New Testament, things in heaven, things on earth, everything is pointing to Christ. And one day, Philippians tells us that every knee will bow and confess Christ as Lord. Christ is the apex of history. Christ brings all of God's purposes together at the cross where he makes reconciliation and unity possible between rebellious sinners and a holy God. The mystery for Paul always means the new unity that has been achieved by Jesus Christ. Where the gospel does not any longer only include Christians who have a Jewish heritage, but it includes everyone who repents and puts their trust in Christ. It's all about unity. We are united to Christ. We're in Christ. And now God's purpose is our purpose. Namely, to unite all things under Christ. We are supposed to be 
Ambassadors, 2 Corinthians tells us, of reconciliation. Ambassadors of unity. The unity that God has given us. And the place that we can start to reflect that is in the church. I said last time that Ephesians is all about God. And we've seen that here very clearly. But Paul says that once we are in Christ, the best way to reflect our godliness is as we live in unity in our relationships in church. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that it unites and reconciles people who are different, yet people who are one in Christ. And because of that, we can work through our differences so that the unity that the gospel brings about shows up in our relationships with each other. You just need to look around even this room and see what God has brought together here. I love it that our church is represented by people from all age groups, young and old, everyone in between. I love it that our church is represented by truckers and teachers, by inspectors and instructors, by bank managers and parts managers, by drywallers and dental assistants, by farmers and framers. I really love it that our church is represented by people of different race, from Canadians to Eritreans to Filipinos to Dutch, even to Germans and Newfies. But as Christians, as people who are recipients of God's amazing blessings, as people who have been united in Christ, our goal is to reflect God's blessings in the way we bridge differences, in the way we overlook faults, in the way we confront weaknesses. And we do that because Holy God bridged the difference through Christ, because God overlooked our faults, passed over our faults, and because God confronted our weaknesses. That's our motive for unity. My friends, just urge you this morning to keep thinking high thoughts of God. Now that we've scaled up the mountains of God's infinitely and, and lavishly rich spiritual blessings, our goal should be to stay up there, to, to live up there. Let's, let's not take the gondola back down. Even though you don't ultimately know why he chose you, bless God for the glorious grandeur of his graces, for his love, for his kindness the kindness that he has shown you in uniting you to Christ through faith. Bless God for adopting you into his family so that you are no longer spiritual orphans. Bless God for his redemption and for his forgiveness by which he brought you out of slavery to sin to a place where you are now holy and blameless before him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you Thank you this morning for this reminder from your holy word of your grace. We thank you for how you have saved the people unto yourself. Lord, we don't understand why and how, but we thank you that you chose people to populate your church. And we thank you that by your adoption and through your redemption and through your forgiveness and, and in your kindness, you have purposed to bring us all together in this church. We thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior. Thank you that you have made us your children. Thank you that you have sealed us with your spirit and that we have uh, an inheritance awaiting us. 
We are just so in awe of the way in which you have blessed your people. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.